the J Cut, and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. My name is James. I'm a content creator, a producer and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and I sometimes write for Films Total. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Total. My specialties are world cinema and lost film, and I also adore the classic era. My name is uh, Andreas. I'm the creator and one of the main writers over at Films Total. I love international and art house cinema. But I love a little bit of everything in between, and it's that time we are doing yet another cinematic smorgasbord. The fact that we're how many in now, like fifteen or so, like this is this is going pretty well. This series. So if um, if you are a newcomer, the way that this works is uh, we just listed off different types of genres that we're super duper into, and what we do in each of these monthly episodes is that each co-host will recommend a film to the other, and we try to expand our um, our cinematic taste, hence Cinematic Smorgasbord. So, in the second half of the episode, we all watch a film that we've never seen before, and we try to invite you listeners at home to do the same. So, in the second half of this episode, we are going to discuss, and I'm astonished that we have not seen this because it's such a cult favorite, uh, Shaolin Soccer. So, that's going to be quite a second half, I think. But, uh, in this first half, we're going to go off what each of us were individually recommended. So, who wants to go first with their findings? I kind of want to hear what James thought of his. Sorry, James, I'm putting it on the spot. <laughs> no, I just actually just volunteered as you said that. <laughs> All right, so what did you get assigned? Ah, so I got the Mike Nichols classic, The Graduate. Ooh. All right, and what were some impressions you had? I actually really enjoyed it. It definitely kind of aligns with a lot of the stuff that I like grew to love that was a part very much a part of 70s cinema, even though this was in 67, so it's like kind of the transition area into the new Hollywood. Yeah, it was kind of on the borderline. And uh yeah, it's a it's a fairly basic story. Uh, it's also based on a a novel, which is where the story originally came from, but it um is about 20-year-old Benjamin Braddock played by Dustin Hoffman in a very great performance. He's a recent college grad and he's kind of aimless in, you know, he's very confused on what he wants to do in life. And then he ends up in an affair with an older married woman. And then somewhere along the way, he ends up falling for her daughter. And one reason I like to bring up that, you know, it reminds me of stuff I like in the seventies. It really, this is an area that kind of opened up more conversations about, the the turmoil of the male psyche around the time of the different expectations and you know kind of pressures the world has especially for someone young and not really knowing what they want to do with themselves and then he just kind of gets in this you know risky you know kind of really troubling situation and then he has to kind of navigate his way out of it but you know it's it's something a lot of us can relate to you know he just graduated college you know doesn't know what to do and then he's just kind of you know while he's having this fair he's just kind of spending his days just kind of lounging around and his dad's constantly asking him if he's going to grad school and you know and then he ends up falling for this woman's daughter to her behest she is flat out like no don't do this but yeah and then it gets really interesting because the third act gets kind of surreal in how everything pans out and i'm not going to give away the ending but it's just like what are these really interesting endings because things sort of escalate and they really escalate towards the end and yeah it's just one of those like you know i don't i just i like it because it's simple storytelling but it's very effective in what it's trying to do 
Right. It's interesting that you're bringing up its social context because um, 1967 really was kind of a transition year. And so I recently read a book called Pictures at a Revolution where they talk about, it's a really great book, by the way, um, the five Oscar nominees of that year, uh, Dr. Doolittle, In the Heat of the Night, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which were all kind of on a spectrum from old Hollywood to new Hollywood. And The Graduate was way further. I think Bonnie and Clyde went even further, but it was towards the new Hollywood end. And so it is a part of that transition. Yeah, and what a great performance by Dustin Hoffman. It's like, this man's a legend, and it's like, you can, you can tell what kind of star he was going to be from this performance. But yeah, it's just, you know, it just has all the hallmarks of a, of a great classic drama. You know, there's just, I don't know, it's, it's you know, especially it's like it's when it's more upscale people, too, because it's like, it's, you know, they're further, it's not even just middle class people, they're upper class people. So it's kind of this upper echelon of society and kind of the pitfalls of being with that status. I see someone's hand up. Uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to say, because you keep bringing up Dustin Hoffman, and Rachel, you brought up the uh, transition from old to new Hollywood, and that's what's interesting about new Hollywood, is a lot of films that were these bridge films almost are commenting on old Hollywood, and I can't help but feel like this film does the same. So if Dustin Hoffman represents the new Hollywood, you have Anne Bancroft, who I feel like has an even better performance than Dustin, which is saying a lot, because Dustin's really good in this. But Anne Backcroft is like one of the one of the all-time greats, uh, representing the yesteryears over here. And what I also love is that, um, as as awful as the character she is, because you know grooming, you know you know vulnerable people is just an awful thing to do. But she also represents the fact that when you're older, you still don't have it all figured out. And I feel like that's something that's very important with this film. So Dustin Hoffman is all of us when we were younger. Where do we go next? She's representative of you never know where to go next, and I don't want to give away the ending of the film either, but the ending of the film is brilliant because it's like, aha, the climax has happened. Okay, now what? And there's no answer. And I love that because there never will be an answer. Nothing will ever be definitive. Nothing will ever be comfortable. We're always going to be aimless, and I feel like that's the brilliance of this film. I honestly came away from it not liking any of the characters, and I think that was kind of the point. That's the other thing, were- yeah. They were all sort of insufferable, but uh, there's one more aspect of the movie I think we should bring up, and that is possibly the most famous part, the music. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, They were just starting out. They had a couple of albums out already, but this was what really put them into the stratosphere. How perfect is this? I don't think it would have been the same movie without it. Like, you know, you bring up its perfection, and it's so perfect that you can thank the internet and the season four of Arrested Development for kind of sullying uh, Sound of Silence. But if you go back to this film and you watch it with all of this meme culture in mind, it still doesn't feel out of place. It still feels perfect and very depressing in context, like the sinking feeling of where do I go next? It still works, even with all of these parodies, satires, everything. Like, you know, how many years later? Another funny thing is... um We've been talking about the gap between Mrs. Robinson and Benjamin, but Anne Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman were only six years apart. They were practically contemporaries. She she had a bit of a head start on him, but no. Like, yeah, they they it it's very interesting that they have to play such different levels in the movie when in fact they are almost the same age. I did not know that, especially because, like you said, um, Anne Bancroft was doing stuff for at least a number of years before Dustin Hoffman, because this was one mm-hmm. of his big breakthroughs. 
Yeah, so uh, gross Hollywood casting. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, um, that sounds like it was a success. And uh, I, I recall when we had the last market sport, I was like so stoked because I was like, this is such a Rachel film, but it's such a great recommendation for James. So overall, do you think it was a success, James? Oh, it was. I mean, it's just one of those films I just haven't gotten to yet. You know, that's what I like about the smorgasbord. It kind of like puts me in a position to explore the films that I've been meaning to. Amazing. Um, so I feel like that was a nice transi- uh, transition of a film for you. Um, Rachel, I feel like I gave you like a very, like, I feel like I just like lobbed some like blue cheese at you with the film that I gave you. That, that's exactly it. It's a very rich film. It's like blue cheese. It's classy. Um, so I got The Color of Pomegranates, which was an Armenian film. And it's about the poet Syed Nova, but it's not your standard biopic, and I think that is putting it mildly. So it goes very deep into sort of religious symbolism and Armenian art, particularly the Armenian art of miniatures. And so much of it is presented in various tableaus and lots of symbolism. I thought it was absorbing. Like, I just wanted to watch it all day. I could have watched several more hours. Um, I looked a lot into the history behind it, and Armenia was controlled by the Soviet Union at the time, so they had a huge hand in... Um, censoring it and and they didn't there was a very prescribed way of doing art in the Soviet Union and it had to be very straightforward to be sort of educational for the people and they did not like this symbolic representation this is the kind of movie where normally I would advise you to go in blind for most movies but this one I felt you have to know some of the history around it or you're going to be totally lost so I would look it out before you watch it yeah, Sergei Parashinov is very interesting. The uh, filmmaker of this film, uh, his own history is like exceptionally like, you know, harrowing, um, fascinating, depressing. Um, and, you know, he was a guy who was often persecuted because of his beliefs, because of his art. Um, but when a lot of film analysts look at something like The Color of Pomegranates, they basically equate it to something like... Um, you know, unfortunately, the awful connotations with this film, but something like Birth of a Nation or Breathless, you know, this type of film that reinvents and shatters the film language before it. Having said that, I've seen a lot of films inspired by Breathless. I've seen pretty much every motion picture on Earth afterwards inspired by Birth of a Nation. I can't see many filmmakers trying to remake this film because it almost feels like it stands alone. As Agreed. Yeah. Apart from maybe some avant-garde stuff, I've never seen anything quite like this. And the colors are so rich and they frame them so perfectly. It's really a visual treat. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like as a aesthetic experience, it's completely unparalleled outside of other Perjanov films. Mm-hmm. Um, you do bring up a good point, though, about needing to know some history beforehand, because once you do, you can understand in a almost like to me, the film feels a lot like visual iconography, like you're looking at like orthodox paintings of religious figures kind of coming to life. Um, so even mm-hmm. if you don't know any history, it's still like a, and it's short enough that you can get by with this. It's like a complete brain melting experiment that. You know, you can't help but, like, really just feel blown away by, but with the context, it becomes something really beautiful. Yeah, the narrative is very difficult to figure out, though, without that context. Oh, yeah. There really isn't one. It's kind of buried. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't recall James. Did you get around to this one, too? I did. Okay. What are your thoughts? Uh, I thought it was really good. I thought it was very poetic, 
no matter how kind of esoteric it got, I think there's only so many times you can kind of pull off that kind of like a non-narrative, but there is a point kind of film. But I think also... um, because there are no tracking shots in this film, which is something that's equally as hard to pull off. Because uh, everything is pretty much master shots and maybe some close-ups. And with the way the colors are and the positioning of the production design, it almost is like a precursor to what to like the Wes Anderson approach approach of like framing and blocking of scenes. Oh, like the very static shots. Yeah, and there's like there's you know there's so much going on, and with all the details in the film, there's just you know. If you watched it multiple times, you could pick up on something different each time if you're paying attention. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like uh, Wes Anderson was definitely inspired by other types of filmmakers. Uh, one that I might be getting into later uh, when we recommend more movies. Wink, wink. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I feel like if Wes Anderson were to watch something like this, there's a... Uh, yeah, it, it, the idea of, of cinematic framing in Perzhenov's films is just, like, completely reinvented. The funny thing is I very nearly did this for World of Movies about a month ago, so... Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you technically still can now. Uh, you just watched it for something else. <laughs> That's true. Uh, might as well include it in the, um, you know, in the old docket, right? So, fantastic. So, you know, we looked at... The Graduate, which involves a, a young man who doesn't know his place in society. Um, we looked at the color pomegranates, whether it's the uh, the figure that the film is based on or the filmmaker himself uh, having to combat against society and expectations and also trying to figure out their place in society. And then we get to my film, which, uh, James, you recommended to me, which I feel like is very applicable because it's the exact same type of story. It's also about a man trying to find his place in society. Only it's uh, Freddy Got Fingered, directed, written, starring, uh, botched everything by Tom Green. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. What'd you think? Uh, I don't think we have enough time for that. Um, but, you know, if I try to boil this down, I have, I, I feel like, did either of you watch Everything Everywhere all at once? Not yet. I haven't yet. Okay, so I, I won't use that as an example. Let's say Persona. And, you know, in Persona, you have the, uh, the fragmenting of one identity into two separate parts. And I kind of feel the same way about this, how I feel about this film. Oh, my God, this movie. So, um, on one hand, I absolutely think it's one of the most abhorrent things I've ever seen. Unquestionably so. Um, most certainly a zero out of 100. But on the other hand as a film which is entirely self-aware about this budget that a studio was willing to give Mr. Sir knighted by the Queen Tom Green. And he said, you know what? I'm going to show you exactly what I'm going to do with your money. I think it's kind of genius. Like, I really do. It's sick in the head. But as a dadist overall statement, before I get further into it, I feel like None of the jokes were funny, except for the film itself existing is its own best, biggest joke. It really is. It's, yeah, it's one of those things where I, <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think there's plenty of funny things, but it's just so out there. And it's funny because how ridiculous it is. There are so many jokes that are accidents in there. Like, 
everything that happens in set is intentional. And I think that's the thing that really kind of gets it. Cause it's like, yeah, this movie exists and he intentionally made it. So, but also I think it, the reason I say it needs to be reevaluated is because like, think about the humor, like his kind of humor really grew into pop culture in a way that we wouldn't have expected because think about all this stuff like the original programming that like, you know, Comedy Central or Adult Swim started doing after that. Yeah, you can really see the origins in this, but this took it way further than the others did. <laughs> yes. Um, so, I'll and a go. legendary performance by Rip Torn. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, I'm forever going to have, you got a job stuck in the back of my head uh, thanks to uh, good old daddy Rip Torn. Um, yeah, so I I recall when I first start started watching this film, and it seemed a little dated. It had a lot of like you know the type of music you would find in a soundtrack to a '90s or 2000s film. Tom Green skateboarding around like it's Tony Hawk Pro Skater. I was like, you know what, this might be okay. Here's a guy who uh, was given a LeBaron, like a beautiful LeBaron, by his dad because he's now going to work at a cheese factory, which I believe that entire part was cut out of the film. So we don't even see that. Um, and it's going to be interesting, but it's going to be fine. Until he inappropriately touches a horse. And by then I knew, that's it, this, this, this is done. I don't know what the hell I'm in for. And I didn't. I sincerely didn't. Between the uh, flailing around of a newborn baby by its umbilical cord um, to the skinning of a deer so he can like be inside of the deer and he proceeds to get hit by a by a truck um the dummy's foot flies off by the way but his foot is intact so i don't know about everything being intentional there uh god what else was there i don't even know Uh, the organ and sausage scene but that was normal by by the film standards (laughs) that's one of the best parts that was normal by the film standards the daddy would you like some sausage i mean like that was that was okay the backwards man uh, by the film standards, there's also the uh, BDSM w- involving uh, paraplegic, which I think is exceptionally um, problematic. I'm just going to put it that Could way. Could only happen in 2001. <laughs> yes. Um, and then the, uh, I think his name is Andy, the little boy who... Who gets injured constantly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's through him that I feel like maybe Tom Green was actually trying to intentionally do something here because uh, I do know a little piece of trivia is that at the end of the film, and if you don't want to be spoiled by Freddy Got Fingered, I, I warn you, um, there's this little boy named Andy who keeps uh, repetitively getting injured. You know, a baseball to the face, glass bottle to the face, gets hit by a car. At the end of the film, he gets sucked up into a jet engine and obviously completely murdered, destroyed. They could not release the film outside of anything that was not an NC-17 unless they made the boy live. And... They got by the censors because you hear an audio bite being like, hey, daddy, I'm okay, or something to that effect. And clearly the boy's not okay. He's completely decimated. But that passed the censor board. And to me, that was like the most fitting note to end on because it's like, was that what this entire film was? Seeing what they could get away with and having it greenlit? Is that what this was? I mean, we could do an entire episode on filmmakers messing with the MPAA, so... And this film alone, we could do an entire episode, really. Yeah, it's it's a film. I like to say it's like it's like realistically, it's a zero as a movie, but as like the way its intentions and execution gets like an eleven because you know this wasn't supposed to be a good movie. If anything, I feel like it's intentionally supposed to be one of the worst damn things ever made. I, it was basically just supposed to be like, all right, you want me to make a film? 
you know, try this on for size and it worked. And he's like, oh my God, okay, well my career is gonna be destroyed after this, but okay, we somehow got what's quite possibly the worst movie ever made, made because the studio system is awful, money talks, and um, producers don't know what the hell the audiences want. And on that level, I think it's kind of brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we could not have had three more catastrophically different films. And we're just going to toss one more into that mix. So we're in the second part of our episode. We are going into uh, the collective pick, which, James, you picked. It's Shallon Soccer. Yes. This one was fun. It was just It was so, so much, much fun. fun. They were leaning into the genre. They were... Uh, they were just giving it their all. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, uh, well, first off, again, uh, like I said at the beginning of this episode, I'm shocked that neither that none of us have seen this yet. I've known about it for years. It was so heavily promoted when it came out. Oh, yeah. I know so many people who are like, oh, my God, I love this film, or people who love other Stephen Chow films. Um, obviously, Kung Fu Hustle was also a really big one. Um I've heard about this film talked about to death and the fact that all three of us, you know, ex, you know, exceptional cinephiles just did not get around to this. It's kind of astonishing, really. I'm amazed that uh, James put together the dots that none of us had seen it. <laughs> it's just, that's also true. I I have a good sense for some reason. It's like, I, I don't know, just for some reason, I can look at a film and be like, oh, we've all never seen this. I don't know why we haven't, but we all haven't, which is kind of funny. It's like, I'm surprised I didn't know this because I'm, I'm a really big fan of Kung Pao Enter the Fist, which oh, goodness. is absolutely ridiculous. So I was like, the fact that I had never seen this one, I was like, how did I miss this? I used to babysit for a family whose favorite movie was Kung Pao Enter the Fist, and it's really fun the first 25 times. Oh, God. It's probably drilled into your head at this point. I, I still I can still recite chunks of it. Don't ask me to. No, 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 that's good. I think for all of our sanities, I think we're good. Um, but back to this film. So, uh, what is it about, James? So it starts off. It starts off at a, like in the past at a soccer game, and this really legendary soccer player. He ends up getting injured. And and this sort of like gang scuffle, there's a lot of fighting going on because of like the end of the game. And then someone takes a wrench to his leg and then he's out of commission. And then he ends up working for um, someone who's his rival. And then he ends up firing him and he's like, okay, I got to put together a team. And then he stumbles upon, oh, I can't remember his name. The main character played by Stephen Chow. And he shows his uh gift in Shaolin Kung Fu and then <laughs> he was like I, I think he kind of was like baffled he's because he was trying to explain he's like if you know if you know Shaolin you don't have any problems and he points an example somebody slipping out a banana <laughs> yes. and he was like oh if you do Shaolin this wouldn't have happened because you would have just done a flip or like you know it makes parallel parking easier and then they have parting ways and then Stephen Chow ends up going to he comes to like a it was like a sweet bun uh shop and he meets someone else who knows Shaolin but she does it to make her to make the buns and then and then yeah, he ends up leaving there cuz there's a whole funny situation with that and then he ends up leaving and he comes across um one of his former brothers who he had met under his master when he was learning Shaolin and then you know 
they're broke and trying to figure out ways to make money. And then he gets the idea, oh, we should play soccer. So he gets like his old crew together and like, hey, we should all play soccer and, you know, use our gifts and show the world, you know, powers of Shaolin through soccer. And they all dismiss it at first. And then he meets up with the, um, there would be coach and was like, all right, let's do this. And then all of them end up, you know, cause they're all in bad situations. So they're like, all right, let's do it. And then they play like a scrimmage round with another set of players. And the, the guys are losing because, you know, at first the, you know, it was hard just to train them. And then when they lose, you know, you see this kind of like cloud go over and then Steven Chow kind of looks at close eyes. He's like, I can feel it. They're getting their powers back. And they're all in these like really insane poses and then they just start annihilating people. And then it ends up with them getting into the, you know, actually competing in a competition for like a million dollars. And then, yeah, it's just them going through the tournament. And then uh, they play the, you know, the antagonist team. And then you find out they're like hop up on like American drugs and are equally as powerful. And then, you know, all in the end, they beat them. They end up beating them like one to zero. And just, just seeing this movie play out is really interesting because like the choreography, the cinematography and editing really make this movie i'd agree yeah like it's it's entertaining and fun the script is hilarious but just the way it was made like i mean the cgi is kind of cheesy but that's to be expected i mean and it's also kind of the point <laughs> yeah it really is but yeah there's just so much this film did right and i think it's just one of those things where it's like you know because it's like i've never been like a big comedy person but if you do it right and i think this one's intentions were to do it right because it wasn't just like something ridiculous just for some you know it's it's a lot of it is like you know shock humor that we often come across or just like poor taste jokes but this one was like you know it it was really smart with what it was trying to do yeah i feel like it's a lot of fun and it knows who its audience is because it's it's uh pertaining to um to like the sports audiences who just love crazy crap you know crazy plays down to the wire everything in the moment and it also pertains to the uh the, to the action and martial arts fan like film fans who uh really really are into again what's going to happen in the spur of the moment you know you combine the two together you've got the craziest damn match you may ever see <laughs> I can see why it would have had such a wide appeal and eventually get a cult following, basically. Pretty much instantaneously. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Like, it was destined to be, like, a cult favorite. Yeah. I I liked it quite a bit. It's not necessarily, like, my forte. I'm not super-duper into fun films because I'm, a, I'm an old, you know, rotting orange who just doesn't enjoy things. But, um... I, I still found it a lot of fun. I found it... Just to see how silly it got was such a draw for me. Yeah, basically. And I love that they sort of leaned into all the stuff that creaks about regular Jalen films, basically. Also, I appreciate any film that pulls off wire work the way this this did. Yes. That's true. Because that's not an easy thing to pull off in a lot of those movies. Like, that takes some real talent and a lot of technical skill to actually do that. Absolutely. That's that's very true. I mean, you know, on a technical level, outside of the CGI, which, again, is in, intentionally supposed to be a little goofy, um, it's still quite a well-made film for something so, you know, on a say this with love, something so stupid. Like, it, it, it's still really well-made, and that's, that's the key with... You know what a good film is, even if it's meant to be silly. Yeah, I think it's because it leans into the tropes so hard that, like, the satirical nature of, enhances the elements that would often be kind of standard in 
if this was like a separate Shaolin Kung Fu film or a sports film. Absolutely. Alrighty. So any more thoughts about Shaolin Soccer before we dive into our next suggestions? Everyone go see it. Yeah, it's it's really fun, and I think it would appeal to a wide range of people, so it would be good for a, a home movie night or something. It's Yeah, it's just, it's just goofy AF, and I feel like in this climate where everything just feels really, really heated, really kind of iffy, you're guaranteed to have a stupidly good time with this. So yeah, absolutely, check it out. And uh, on the topic of checking out, Rachel, where can we be checked out? We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the K-Cut, and if you stick around, you'll hear what we're doing next for Smorgasbord. Uh-huh. Well, this is usually what we look forward to the most, which is kind of paradoxical, because you'd think it would be the findings of what we recommend, but I feel like we just get, as cinephiles, we just get really excited to find out what we're going to be watching next. Like, ooh, yes, a film, as if it's like an achievement you have to unlock. It's just always the best part of the episode. So who wants to find out what they're watching next? What am I watching? Okay, so you want to find out first. Okay, so um, when we were talking about the color of pomegranates and he brought up Wes Anderson and his, uh, you know, his fixation on static shots, you know, perfectly framed images, um, I'm going to present you something similar, and I hope you have not seen this. I don't think you've seen this. This is one of the greatest films of all time of Japanese cinema, of international cinema. I don't believe you've seen this. We've done a lot of episodes, so if you have, I apologize. Have you seen Tokyo Story by Yasuzuro Ozu? I haven't seen any Ozu. Well, get ready for one of the most influential, heartbreaking films you may ever watch. That is the one you're going to watch this, this month. That's a really good choice. I feel like if you love film, you need to at least attempt Ozu once. At least once. Alrighty. I can't wait. Cool. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll go next. What am I going to watch, Rachel? Have you seen The Shootist? I don't. I, I can't even make out what that is. Like, I'm trying to remember what it is. So probably not. No. It was John Wayne's last movie. And uh, one thing, one reason why I thought this would appeal to you is, A, it's an interesting movie. But what's far more interesting is the history surrounding it and the discussion we can have about it. So um, it's got... James Stewart, John Wayne, Lauren Bacall, and little Ronnie Howard, who at that point is not so little. So I hope you get something out of it. Okay, fantastic. I will check out the shooters. Thank you very much. Okay, so I guess it's my turn. Yes. So I planned out every single pick I'm doing for the rest of the year. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> James makes us look bad. <laughs> I know. No, I, I have a system now. So, like, this. some of these are actually very calculated. Um, but for this month, uh, Rachel, I'm going to give you one of my all-time favorite no-budget films, Following, by Christopher Nolan. All right. I have not seen that one. But, of course, since I'm a human being on this earth, I know uh, Christopher Nolan, so this will be good. It's only 70 minutes, so it's a quick watch. Oh, and, uh, thank you. And it's on the Criterion channel. Wow, you're A+. Amazing. So, uh, we're not quite done just yet. Uh, Rachel, I believe it was your turn to suss out what all three of us have not watched, and I, I, I'm sure you probably came up with one film somehow that all three of us have not watched. What is that going to be? Yes, this one is actually easy. Uh, have any of you heard of the film Atlantic Rhapsody? <laughs> no. No. What is that? Okay. It was from 19, uh, 1989 by Catherine Otter's daughter, and it is the first 
film known to have been made in the Faroe Islands. It is rentable from Vimeo. It is 70 minutes long, and um, it's the first ever made in this place. The Faroe Islands are between Denmark and Iceland. They're technically under Danish control, but they're very much their own culture. They have their own language and everything like that. And um, I actually reviewed a film from them for World of Movies not too long ago, but that was a total coincidence. I just came up with that on the spot. I've been planning Atlantic Rhapsody for ages, so I'm looking forward to it. That actually sounds so interesting. I thought this was by the name. I thought it was going to be something like really extravagant or maybe even like flamboyant and goofy, but this actually sounds really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, for anybody listening at home and for you two, it's rentable from Vimeo. Ah, there we go. That's how we're going to check it out. Fantastic. Well... Thank you all so much for listening. Now you know what you're going to be watching. You're going to be watching Atlantic Rhapsody, The Shootist, Tokyo Story, and following. And please let us know what you think. Uh, hit us up on our socials. Um, have a good time. We apologize for fitting off fingered, but I'm sure some of you found that well worthwhile. Uh, <laughs> uh, tune in to the next episode. We've got some good stuff coming. That was the K-Cut. Now we are going into the all-cut. <laughs> <laughs>